into the second half of Mark's gospel. We've sort of been walking through Mark's gospel, and we walked through the first half, and this, this morning, sort of, we transition, or as one, one person said, as I was reading this week, that these scenes that we just heard read represent the turn in Mark's gospel to something else. Now, to help us sort of capture where we're going and why we're doing that, I want to talk about Cinderella, but I have a graph, which helps, I think. Um, it, it, on the left, you see misery uh, and ecstasy. On the right, you see time as it moves forward in the story. So it starts off, she has this, uh, if you haven't read or heard Cinderella and you want to save that for yourself, now's a good time to step out, go to the bathroom, grab some coffee. Uh, I don't want to ruin it for anyone. But she has this awful life. She gets to the ball. Uh, she makes the clothes, the great scene with the mouse in them. I love that scene. Um, and then goes to the ball and the dance with the prince. But oh no, it's midnight. She has to go. She goes back to the same awful life, but not as sad as before because she had a great experience. And then the prince comes, puts the shoes on her, and lifts her up. The point of this to say is that if, if telling the story to someone, if you were to say, look, the point of the story is the prince is going to come and put the shoe on her and she's going to be fine, right? And you never actually told any other part of the story, you wouldn't have a graph at all, right? You just have a dot. And you wouldn't actually appreciate this sort of movement that goes from the left to the right, up and down, and sort of like brings you to hope and then you lose hope and then it all comes back again, Right? With the way that we sort of practice the second half of the church season or the second half of this Jesus gospel, which, which you would call Lent or this journey towards Easter, is we actually try to go into the darker, more difficult parts of this story so that we can appreciate the light all the more. We can appreciate that, as you can see, according to this graph, the, the ecstasy is the highest at the end, but it wouldn't be that high if you didn't take the journey through the story. And so for the next six weeks up until Easter, we're going to journey through this, not this story. Um, I will not be talking about uh, uh, Cinderella every Sunday. Um, We're going to journey through this story, the story of Mark, but in the second half after the turn sort of happens. And so this scene that we heard read for us sort of represents that turn. Now there's one other thing I wanted to say is that we rarely explain the decorations that we do at church. And sometimes there's a reason for that. It's like, this looks nice. Let's put that up. Other times, we actually think through it. And so, as you'll notice, there's there's black behind the cross and black sort of on the sides. Um, And starting sort of from this scene on, Jesus is walking towards his death. The theme of the Gospel of Mark from this moment forward is sort of that of almost a funeral procession. That we have sort of this theme of going towards this death that is told for the first time sort of in this scene with Peter. And so we sort of pick black to sort of bring us to that place of sort of moving along to that place. So next Sunday, we're going to have Palm Sunday. And if you're familiar with the church year, that's way too early, right? Um, You normally have that the Sunday before Easter. But what we're going to do is have Palm Sunday so that we can walk the events that happen in Jerusalem all the way up until the cross. So, so we're going to enter into Jerusalem next week, and then all the other readings from the Gospel of Mark are going to be from what happens in Jerusalem. It's going to be from the scenes that make up that. And so we'll have palms next week, and we already have some palms up. But to enter into what is this final sort of time of Jesus' life like? What is, what is going to happen here and sort of the climax of the story? Now, 
there's some thinkers who I think correctly say that each of the four Gospels sort of has this, this long beginning that's really just an introduction, and the whole of the story is about what happens with the sort of arrival in Jerusalem, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. That everything that comes before that is just an introduction. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's crazy. There's some good stuff before that. There is. But if you think about Paul, the Apostle Paul, is like rarely references, the guy who wrote the second part of the New Testament, rarely references any of the teachings that make up the first half of the gospel. What he says to the communities, the churches that follow him, is that I've decided to know Christ and Christ crucified and that alone. And I don't think Paul means he's giving up all the examples that Jesus sets for us in the first parts of these stories. But what he correctly sees is that this notion of this one who comes to us is claimed to be the Messiah, goes to the cross and is crucified and rises again, is really 90% of the whole story is the big factor of what's happening there. And so that's why we're going to focus on sort of those scenes and that time going forward. And so this morning we have sort of two scenes that make up this hinge of the gospel. In the first half of the gospel, Jesus sort of travels around, he heals people, he takes boating trips with his friends. Um, I thought that was funny. Um, uh, he takes boating trips with his friends. He sort of moves and just sort of travels around the Galilean, Galilean region without much of a purpose or direction. What he does is sort of demonstrate God's sovereignty is active in that place, but he just sort of seems to move as though time isn't much of an issue for that first half, chapters 1 through 8. But in the second half, and it's the small line that, that you'll miss if you're not reading really slow, and I'll admit I had to go find it after I read that I should look at this line, was that on the way he asked them. This is the first time that there's been any reference in the Gospel of Mark that they are on the way to anywhere. And so it says, on the way he asked them. Sets the tone of of sort of that this is the hinge that makes up the Gospel of Mark. And so on the way he asked them, who do you say that I am? Now, Kelly and I just got uh, one of those speakers that listens to you all the time and transfers it back to the government. Um, I'm a pastor. What, what are they going to find out? It's not that, uh, we're not that dangerous people. Um, my daughter hasn't figured out how to buy anything yet with it yet. Um, but I was reading the story of a guy who was visiting his brother for the holidays who had gotten one of these speakers as well. And he, he had written this magazine that I read. He said, when you ask it, who is the president, who is Buddha, who is Muhammad, it gives you simple answers, right? But get this, ask who is Jesus, and it won't answer. Ask who, uh, it won't answer, it will say something like, I can't help you with that. My, my phone, I tried this, it says, I'm still learning religion. <laughs> um, which I don't know, like, it's, that's bad news if it's... Uh, I don't want it to learn that. Um, uh, Ask who is Satan, and it gives you a solid answer. Ask who Charles Manson is, and you get a really long answer. This got me thinking, and I went into my computer and typed it into Google search, and all these bios popped up near the top of the page. But when I typed in Jesus, there was nothing sort of bracketed out at the top of the page. Who is Jesus, uh, Alexa, or Google Home? Who is Jesus is sort of a confounding question. And you can imagine how hard it is when Jesus asks you this question himself. 
Jesus is traveling on the way with his disciples, and he turns to them and they say, okay, who are people saying that I am? And the disciples, they go through sort of the usual suspects at this point. They say that, um, um, oh, some people, they say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others say Elijah, and others still one of the prophets. They sort of name these sort of different people that Jesus could be. And each one of these answers, funny enough, has some truth to them. Jesus is one who comes back from the realm of the dead, and John the Baptist has just died. Jesus is one who, who figures in his ministry sort of like Elijah um, and as a prophet. Um, they don't name Moses. Um, he has that figureship too. But they say, like one of these prophets is who the people are saying you are. But Jesus is not, not content with that. He says, not Google, Google or Alexa, who do you say, but who do you say that I am? He says, Peter, but who, or does, to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? It's a hard question if you're a first century Jew at this moment, because the answers you want to say might lead you to your own death in a different way than it'll turn out. He's the Messiah who's going to throw off Rome. He's going to destroy the oppressor. He's going to be the one who sort of goes into Jerusalem and takes it back. This is why you get the disciples saying, how many swords do you think we need? Because to claim that Jesus is the Messiah, particularly in this region, uh, Caesarea Philippi, where sort of Roman figures are very high, to say that he is the one, this political figure, who's going to restore Israel, to make all things right, is to sort of take your own life in your hands. So when Peter is brave enough to say that you're the Messiah, that's a big deal. That captures some of what the challenges at this political moment in this period in time to say that you're the Messiah, and now I know where we're going. We're going to go take the world back. You've been, you've been planning for sort of this, this sort of battle with the forces, the imperial forces that imprison us. All this is true if you think about it, but Peter has a very sort of material mindset of it. He's going to go and defeat Rome. When in fact, Jesus is talking about defeating the powers of sin and death. A much bigger scheme. And so the interesting part at this moment is Jesus tells them, and as understanding this political moment, he says, don't tell anyone that, right? Because by the time he gets to Jerusalem, if this word is circulating, they're just going to arrest him and kill him anyways. Like, there's going to be no time for him to do any of the other events that happen in Jerusalem if, if this word gets around. But the next thing he tells them is that, that now that you know this, you must know that I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. What's weird is he even calls the crowd back for this moment. So it's like they have their huddle, and they finally sort of confess to some degree who Jesus is. And then Jesus calls everybody back, or it says, don't tell anyone, calls everybody back around, and says, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem now, and I will be um, arrested, tried by the, by the chief priests, and, and that I will be killed, and then on the third day I'll rise again. Peter's one to avoid this is pretty human and pretty rational. <laughs> if you think about it. One, none of these other people know that I just confessed that this guy is the Messiah. Second off, what is this all we're going to Jerusalem to die, you to die type thing? And not only that, the, this image of the temple priest and the Messiah coming together is sort of the way it's supposed to be. They're not supposed to murder the Messiah. 
Jesus has sort of thrown a giant wrench in the confession that Peter just made. And Peter, not trying to necessarily hedge his bet, thinks, I've got to talk to him about this, because if I'm right and he's the Messiah, this is not the way the story's supposed to go. This is not the movements that happen next. And so what Peter does is he takes Jesus aside, which is, I mean, we know Jesus on the other side of the cross. seems like a very bold move. Um, He takes Jesus aside, and and the Greek word almost contains that he patronizes him, telling him that this is not where we're going to go. And he began to rebuke him, it says. But when Jesus looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but of merely humans. This rebuke is harsh. Now, Peter wanting to save his friend, I think, is humans. And not only that, the one is who we think is going to sort of renew Israel, I think, is very human. I think it's a, 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 the type of response most of us would have. I mean, if you think of somebody you love at, at 50 or 60 getting diagnosed with some sort of operable cancer, and they say, I don't want treatment, you would pull them aside and talk them through why it's a good idea to get treatment, Right? It's not the exact same thing, but Peter feeling this compassion for this person to say, this is not the way we want this story to end, is deeply human. Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan, is the highest rebuke we sort of have in the Gospels. But it has sort of three ways that it, that it sort of functions. One is um, the very literal, get behind me, Satan. Get out of my sight. Don't take me from the path that I'm supposed to walk on. That's the first way. The second way is sort of the is sort of to quit being an obstruction, right? Don't be an obstruction to this. But the third way, the get behind me, Satan, is actually calling Peter back to the path of discipleship. The word is merely sort of get behind me, Satan, and if we know about disciples, they're ones who follow their master. You've put yourself in front of me. But if you get back behind me, you'll find yourself in the path of discipleship again. He's calling him to sort of renew that path of discipleship. Peter always gets a a rough... I'm trying to avoid beating up on Peter because I think he really represents what most of us would do, even if we made it this far. So I try to take it lighter on him. But I think he's, he's profoundly human. And, and the fact that he gets this rebuke in front of the disciples and gets back behind Jesus and follows him is a lot about his ability to move and to follow with Jesus. And then he calls the crowd to him and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What is good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Jesus proclaims this message to the whole group. That to follow me, you're going to follow in the path to this cross. But here on this path, you'll actually find life. That here is where life will be fulfilled. It's a big, big word. And one of the ways that I sort of want to sort of think about this, this half of this scene is that this is about sort of the no dimension of the Christian life. The ability to say no 
is what sets us free, is what Jesus says. Now, if you think about it, my, my dog is primarily sort of just governed by instincts. He has no ability to really say no. Um, it, it, I, it barely listens to me at all. Um, but, uh, like, they don't have this sort of many... When you look at the animal kingdom, you look at things that are governed by instincts. They're yes things. They pretty much only say yes to the things that they want to do. There's never this moment of sort of like, I should rationally think about this. Do I want this now? Will I get too fat? I mean, the number of animals that will eat themselves to death if they have too much food is staggering. Like, they don't have sort of these ways to regulate and to say no. That's a little bit of a, that's a sort of a world truth. And what Jesus is saying even more so is that if you follow the ways of sort of the world and the ways that it's going, that will lead you to an empty death. But if you say no to that, if you pick up your cross and follow me, you can, you can gain much more through that. You can gain your life back. You can gain your soul No is our access to that, the ability to say no, to create space. And so, actually, we have these, if you're interested in joining us for this this Lent journey, on Thursday nights at 6, we're going to be here, and we'll have um, uh, soup and supper downstairs, and then we'll come up and sing two songs and discuss sort of these patterns and habits that we'd like to take up that train us to sort of be a people capable of saying no in the world to train us to sort of follow this path of the cross, that, that sort of build grooves into our life to sort of change that function. That's sort of what we'll be doing on Thursday night. So I have the forms here, uh, small for those who can see and large for those who can't. Um, but that's, uh, that's sort of this pattern of the story. And there's this, uh, if you're familiar with the last century, the, the, the gulags of Russia, they, they were committing large amounts of sort of torture and, and such there. And this truth that Jesus tells us, I think, is represented well in this sort of passage from, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the people who went through that. But he says, from the moment you go into prison, you must put yourself cozy, you must put your cozy past firmly behind you. At the very threshold, you must say to yourself, my life is over. Little early to be sure, but there's nothing to be done about it. I shall never return to freedom. I'm condemned to die now or a little later. I no longer have any property whatsoever. For those I have loved have died, and for them I have died. From today on, my body is useless and alien to me. Only my spirit and my conscience remain precious and important to me. Confronted by such a prisoner, the interrogator will tremble. Only the man who has renounced everything can win that victory. Different circumstances, but what Solzhenitsyn is naming and and sort of facing the world is that to say that I've lost everything, that to follow and participate in the cross of Jesus is already death to me, that all of my cozy comforts are sort of gone to me, is what frees you to go into the future confidently. If in Mark, the interrogator of the world is Satan, then the thing that he fears is for you to know that you're already dead and belong to God in life, death, and resurrection. That that's where your home is. And so that sort of passage of being able to move into that truth 
um, to be able to see those things as passing away enables us to sort of move into the pattern of the cross. The next scene, the transfiguration, I think, represents sort of God's sort of yes for us. I think if you only have the no in life, the no of the Christian life, you end up in legalism. You end up in sort of controlling atmospheres. You end up in sort of areas that only want to sort of tear you down and really don't have any life to offer you. That these two units form the center of the gospel, I think, is so deeply important. Because from here, he goes into a place of beauty and reveals something to them of what this raised life is that they're going to have with him. He's transfigured before them on the mountain, and beauty comes before them. That this reveals to them something of where they're going. This is where, what they're after when they deny themselves. I haven't talked about this here with people in the seasons of, seasons of fasting and seasons of feasting. The church in its wisdom has seasons of fasting where we fast together and sort of deny ourselves so that we can concentrate and grow up into who Christ is. Church in its wisdom, and we don't practice this very well, has seasons of, of, of feasting where we come together and we celebrate. Now, now American culture um, tends to exist in, in many of its relationships from food to working out to TV to this is, is sort of like a binge and uh, abstain sort of culture. We're going to feast so much that it, it, it comes out of our eyes. We're going to binge watch every uh, Avengers movie all 22 hours. Um, we're going to sort of, and so you end up in these either sort of gluttonous phases uh, with, with only feasting cultures, only yes cultures. You sort of don't have any muscles or anything left. And then you end up almost sort of bulimic in life, too. You eat so much that the only thing you can do is purge afterwards. And so for us, as, as a people sort of committed to this path, we have these seasons in which we practice no pretty heavily. And then we have seasons where we, where we enjoy the beauty and the goodness that God has given us in creation. We enjoy the beauty and the goodness of feasting and sharing together. And so these two scenes connected, as Jesus takes these three disciples and he's transfigured before them, he reveals a bit of the resurrected life. A translation that, that I liked this week was that dazzling light, his, his clothes were such dazzling light so that, um, and white so that no launder could do them so. His clothes are so, so radiated that they're a white that doesn't even seem possible. He's transformed in that place. He's transfigured into something else. And it's very clear, I think, if you look at it and you slow this scene down, you can, you can not only see the connections to the crucifixion, that, that Jesus goes up on a mountain in the crucifixion, that, that he um, uh, is, is with two people, the two criminals instead of Moses and Elijah, that he um, is sort of... Uh, this, this voice that comes from heaven that says, this is my son, which we heard at the baptism, and now the disciples hear here. Um, the question on the cross is almost juxtaposed in the why have you abandoned me? That there's this fullness on, of one mountain scene and the emptiness of the next mountain scene is sort of what stands before us here. And what they see on this mount is that revelation of what they're going to become. You know, that, that passage that Park read for us, that, that, that this light is within us that Christ has revealed. 
or in later in the New Testament, it says that we'll be transformed in the in an instant. Our bodies will be transformed into something else, and that these bodies, while perishing like seeds, will be renewed into something else. What they see is Jesus' human body renewed on top of the mountain. Why Moses and Elijah, they represent the law and the prophets. But Peter here again speaks, and here he's not trying to um, as much reject the cross as he is to avoid the cross. Just my pattern with the Christian life is, is oh, I get that. I believe Jesus when he says that this is the way to life. Uh, so I can't reject it, but I can do lots of things to avoid it. Um, and so he says, you know, why don't we make three buildings here? And it says he says this out of fear, which seems like a very, again, very rational response when, when Jesus is transformed in this sort of way. He says, this is good for us. Why don't we build three dwellings here, one, one for you? And you'll notice he gets this hierarchy, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It'd be good for us to stay here. I think the biggest mistake he makes is that he thinks Jesus needs one. Is that, is that Jesus being transfigured at this moment represents the light of the temple, represents the place where people will worship and reside, represents the tabernacle of God himself. And what he's saying in, 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 in the Greek, it says, you know, sort of build a tabernacle like the Jews had in the wilderness. Jesus doesn't need one. Moses and Elijah, they could use two huts. But Jesus himself being the radiation, a radiating light, the one who has spoken over after this doesn't need a dwelling place the same way that others do. And so at that moment in which he says that, that voice from Kevin that says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you can, you can think of the Abraham scene here where Abraham is called to offer his son up on a sacrifice in a mountain. Uh, you, can, you can think of of all sorts of scenes and what does it mean for Israel to be God's son. And now here this voice is proclaiming that, that this, this one is that son in flesh. He is faithful Israel incarnate. You can see all these things, and when they get up, there's nobody around them except for Jesus. It's actually the way it is, is that, is that when that voice comes, we only see Jesus. So they go down the mountain and, and my favorite part is they, they kept asking and discussing among themselves what rising from the dead meant. Um, for Jews at this time, there was this general belief in this general resurrection that all would rise. But the idea that one would come, live faithfully, die, and be raised without everybody else rising with him is a new concept. How, why is, he's just going to be risen from the dead is not something that, that makes a lot of sense to them. But what Jesus is saying is that, that my revelation is going to be the first sign of this renewal of creation. And that general resurrection will come later. And so they come down the mountain, and Jesus resumes his, his sort of path here. And he goes along the way. So we have this divine yes and this divine no, these two halves of Mark's story. So for the next time, we're sort of going to walk towards this cross. We're going to to practice in many ways sort of picking up our crosses and following Jesus and knowing what many people didn't. He tells them not to tell anybody about the transfiguration until after he has risen from the dead. 
that we know that we live on this side of the resurrection. The glory that comes to us after seasons of denial, of fasting, of sort of picking up our cross and following Jesus, of seeing all that we have as sort of passing away, and that, that we actually know that there's this other layer to reality that's being lifted up, that the sheet is sort of being taken off of, that we see the glory that's before us, and that that's the path we follow in. Last year on Transfiguration Sunday, it's a scene we talk about almost every year, um, I played a song, uh, like, I didn't, I put on a song and you listened to it, is what happened, um, and I had been talking to, with Jonathan about playing the song actually here, um, and it, we had scheduling, and I had moved Transfiguration Sunday three times, I think, uh, which didn't make it easy for Jonathan to commit, um, but he is here today, and he's going to play that song, which I'm sure most of you have forgotten the way I did it, but you'll remember the way that Jonathan and Emily do it, I'm sure. Um, but this song, I think, captures that yes movement. The response song after communion is take my life. And so even in this moment, I want us to listen to this one first, and then we'll have communion. And then that response song brings us into that self-denial too. But this song for me always brings me to the beauty of, of sort of what's happening in the transfiguration. So... Thank you, Jonathan and Emily, for playing it today.
Thank you, Jonathan and Emily, for that. Much better than listening to it on my speaker. Said we were going to communion next, but one of the things that we're going to do for the next sort of week, six weeks, as we move towards towards the sign of Easter, the sign of God's sort of uh, resurrection in the world, is we're going to to do sort of confession during the worship service, which I know is new for some people and and not new for others. But I find I find that in my own prayer life, um, the pattern of having regular times of confession is actually good. It actually helps me purge some of the things I'm holding in. It helps me let go of the things that I've done wrong. It helps me sort of hear and know the good news of what God has done in my life. The words we started with this morning, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, means that when we come for this moment, we don't actually have this 